You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Leadership Lessons for the Christian, recorded on October the 23rd, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. The time of the apostles was coming to an end. Jesus uh, had ascended to heaven after going to the cross and raising, and he left 12 men in charge of taking the gospel out of Israel and to the nations, and they had begun. They had begun planting churches, but their time was drawing to an end. They didn't know when the Lord was returning. They thought it might be in their own lifetime. It was becoming apparent that it wasn't going to be. And our text today begins with these words, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy. And there's a lot of weight to that for the Apostle Paul. He knows his own uh, mortal end, his, the end of his earthly body, is coming very soon. And his ability to interact directly with planting churches and what the churches do is about to end. And you hear him say to Timothy, Listen, this charge, I'm now giving it to you. Um, I've done my job. I'm not going to be here much longer, but this job needs to go on. First Timothy is a letter that is about keeping God's church going forward in an orderly and proper manner after the apostles leave. And this, these three uh, verses at the end of the chapter really serve as the end of a very long introduction. The whole first chapter is an introduction You'll see in in chapter 2, the very first thing he says is, first of all, as if he's beginning again, because the introduction is over. So he ends the introduction with a charge. I'm charging you, Timothy. So you have one really very important leader in the church, the Apostle Paul, giving the baton to another leader in the church. And even within these three verses, there are principles of leadership that he gives Timothy, leadership lessons, if you will. And I want us to listen in on those, because... Here's the trick of leadership lessons in the church. The leaders of the church, unlike many other institutions, are for the most part to do the exact same things that everybody else is supposed to do. Not so of generals or CEOs or leaders in a lot of different teachers in schools. The students, the, the people who are under authority, don't necessarily have the same job description. But when it comes to the church... We follow a leader who says, follow my lead, do what I do. So when we look at the leadership lessons that are embedded in just these three verses, the trick is, they're not just for Timothy, they're for you and I. So um, let's jump in. Let's read our text today. 1 Timothy 1, verse 18 to 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them... You may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. I'm going to stop right there. We'll read the rest in a minute. And let's, let's take notes already, because leadership lesson one is already passed. Those who lead in the church of Jesus Christ do so in the context of being loved and loving. The leaders in God's church are not professionals. They're not there just to simply do a job. You know, back in, when I was a kid, there was a show um, called um, Adam 12, or, and then there was another one called Dragnet, and, and we were taught that these cops, by watching television as children, were only doing their job. And no matter what they did, they could save you from death, and they'd be like, thank you, only doing my job. I mean, they were the consummate professionals. I'm not here to burden you with a relationship, I'm only doing my job. And, and, and it's a mistake if a leader in the church ever thinks that. I once talked to a pastor when I was in New Jersey. I called him on the phone, actually because someone had made an anonymous contribution um, uh, to someone in his church. And he wanted, they wanted me to, to, to make sure it gets there. And uh, he said, well, I don't really know that person. And I knew their church was rather small. And um, I said, no. He says, no, I've been in ministry a long time, and I've learned it's best just not to make too many close relationships. Just do your job and get out of there. I'm like, you know, what are you, Joe Friday? I'm only doing my job here. And that's not the way it's to be. Notice how Paul says to Timothy, my child. And if you didn't know their relationship, you might think it's his son. It's not his son. They're not related. 
Timothy had a Greek dad somewhere, perhaps not very involved in his faith. It seems his mother and grandmother were the ones who, who were the faithful ones. Paul was certainly not his father, but Paul had worked with him. And in working with him and developing him as a leader, Paul had no, no gates, no doors that stopped the relationship. In fact, he took it to, I'm like your dad. You're like my son. It's not a professional relationship. He coached him, but he coached him like a father, not like a professional coach. Professional coach, you know, when it's, I, I, I love sports. Football, obviously, is God's favorite sport, as we all know. And um, I, I really want to make a joke how, how soccer is the devil's, but I'm sure that's not true. Because I'll get in trouble. But I love, you know, when, when teams are winning, everything's good in the clubhouse. They're brothers. Oh, me and my brothers fighting together. We just love each other. They're family. When they're losing, they can't get along. But is it really a brotherhood? Who's the kicker for the Pittsburgh Steelers? Does anyone even know? I heard someone yell it out. But last year it was a guy named Sean Squeezem, which he didn't even spell right. How come the brother is out of the family? Because when you coach in the pros, it's all about performance. It's not about relationship. Oh, it's your brother until you miss that pass. And so leaders know that. I mean, they, they have to be careful. They have to guard their hearts. Don't love this person too much. They're gone. First bad, first, first time they sprain their ankle. And really it's true that in most jobs and most of life, it's not supposed to be that way in the church. To, to be a leader in God's church is to relate to God as father and work with other people who relate to God as father, which makes us all brothers and sisters. And we're supposed to actually believe that and act like that. God's leaders, therefore, are vulnerable by design. Something you may or may not think about, um, but I think about it because uh, it's my experience. Um, in other words, God's leaders are in need of the same exact love that they are required to give. And they are to lead through growing relationships. Anyone that a God's leader leads, he's supposed to love more and more and grow in love for them. Like brothers and sisters. Jesus set this pattern. Uh, we should not overlook what's said in the Gospels after the cross. The cross is the central event of human history where Jesus laid down his life for you. For you. Because you sinned. He didn't. He died to pay for your sin. So when you die, you can be forgiven and have heaven. Right? Right? That's the central event. His resurrection was necessary. If he doesn't rise from the dead, there's no victory over the grave. So there's forgiveness, there's victory. But then there's this, this just short records in the Gospels of stuff that happened after he rose again. And one of the most important events happens on a beach somewhere in, in, in Galilee where Jesus meets with his guys. There's only 11 left. There was one who was always a bad egg. And they went fishing and Ended up on the beach where he cooked them breakfast. He cooked the resurrected Christ, cooked them fish. Amaz and never, always an amazing thing to me. People say, well, I don't do the important work. I just work in the kitchen. Oh, really? Well, when the Lord was resurrected and his time of humiliation was finished, when his next step was glory in heaven, he said, hmm, I think my boys are hungry. I'm going to cook them some fish. So, I don't know. I can't think of a closer place to, to Jesus. But in any case, he's sitting there. They're eating fish. He cooked after paying for their sins, which is greater. I'd rather have you pay for my sins than cook me fish. But he does the big thing. He does the little thing. And then he says, hey, Simon. Yeah, Jesus. Simon's like, we're good now. I had a private talk with Jesus and that whole deny him thing. Remember that? He denied Jesus three times. That's, that's behind us now. He won't bring that up again. And he doesn't. But he does say, hey, Simon, do you love me? Simon's like, huh, that's a strange question right in front of all the guys. You bet I do. I'm your man. Feed my sheep. And he asked him again and he asked him a third time. He said, Lord, you know I love you. He says, I know. Tend my lambs. 
And, and in that little exchange, Jesus sets a pattern. It's a pattern of leadership ministry as the greatest leader hands off to the second in command leader. And he says, here's how we're going to do this. You're loving me, right? Yes. Good. Good. Since you love me, because of your affection for me, your relationship with me, what I'd like you to do is take care of the ones I love. And he's handing it off. And we can almost feel the shadow of that falling on 1 Timothy 1, verse 18 to 20, where Paul, knowing he's going to die, says to Timothy, Timothy, my beloved child, I'm handing off this to you. This is my charge. Go care. Jesus loved his friends. His friends loved him back. Based on that love, go and love the ones I love. It's, it's a relationship. Being a pastor has many joys and heartaches. And I have good news, has more joys than heartaches. At least most of the time. Some pastors go through a lot more heartaches than others. But the biggest heartaches don't, may not come from where you think they come from. I'll tell you personally. You know where they come the most? From feeling relationally rejected because of performance. You think, what, what's he talking about? Well, when, when you invest in someone, you're loving them, you, you're actually thinking you're becoming friends. And then someone says, well, I decided I don't like the church. Don't like the music you play. Don't like this. You didn't visit my cousin when, when her sister had bunions. And, and everyone knows you should do that if you're a decent pastor. And, and, and you invest, invest, invest. Years can go by where you're thinking, we're friends. You, you, you're in one another's homes. You eat together. And because they don't like the way you perform, boom, they, don't, they leave. And I'm always standing there going, okay, I can dig that I'm not a great, you know, perfect pastor. I'm doing my best. But I thought we were friends, and that's it. You don't hear from them at all. They're just gone. I fired you. Boom, you're out of my life. I'm like, how do you do that? That is the most heartbreaking thing about being a pastor. No kidding. Now, I'm, not, I'm saying that to show you the vulnerability that's in this. I'm not saying it for pity. Please never pity me. <laughs> really don't. Um, in fact, I would say copy me in that. Love until you're very vulnerable. And people will hurt you. Some people are going to do that to you too. They already have. Don't protect yourself. Just let it be. But one of the joys is the other side of that. What a privilege it is to be loved and received into people's lives. And, and, and many people, many hear my voice, I know love me and I don't know why. It's not deserved. I just... It, you know, bringing the word of God, I'm just, I really feel like a waiter. I'm not the chef. I didn't cook this stuff. I just bring you food someone else cooked. And you're like, man, that's awesome food. Thank you for the word of God. And I just, and then there are people in my life who I know will be in my life till I die. Many of them in this room and in the rooms where this voice is heard. And I know it. I just know it. And I'm like, why do I get this privilege? One time, I was at a wedding in New Jersey with people who are still very much my friends and I was their pastor and, and one of the older people in their lives had died and I had done the funeral and it was very, very sad. And then a couple months had gone by and one of the young people was getting married. And there I was with these same people. Why did they let me into their life? And there was joy in that room and I got to be a part of it. Well, that's not improper. We're family. And, and leadership is to be done in a context of, of love and of risk and of vulnerability. But really, so is your Christian life supposed to be. You should not protect yourself from the Christians around and you should not be aloof or passive about why you're there with them. Strange as it is, God stuck you with these people. Why? So you'd love them. They're not perfect, but guess what? Look in a mirror. It's like family. You know, they always say you can, you can choose your friends, you can't choose your family. There's a lot of truth to that. You got that weird aunt, all right? You didn't ask for her, but guess what? Sometimes she lives in your house, <laughs> and you got to love her. 
Well, that's God's design for his church. It's designed for you. Second leadership lesson we grab just from this text is leaders in God's church work towards a future set for them by God when he called them. Paul reminded Timothy of his prophetic call. and, And this is cool. I would love to have a prophetic call. Maybe I'll get one one day. But apparently people laid hands on Timothy at one point, the elders of the church. We know this from another place in Timothy. And someone had a prophetic word over him. And we don't know what it was. We don't know what they said. Uh, We don't know if it was that God was giving him a special gift to do his job or it was a special job to do. But whatever it was, Paul pointed backwards towards it when he said, I entrust this charge in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. I'm asking you to take the gospel that I've taken care of. Take the church I've cared for. And in accordance with prophecies made about you, you as an individual, it's not just a a general call to anybody. You, Timothy, as an individual are seen by God, your individual life is supposed to make an individual contribution. He sets him on a timeline of his own story. This is your story, Timothy. This is your chapter in God's book. And you matter. And and, and at one point in the past, the Holy Spirit even told us all, he matters, he's going to do a job. Well, now you're in this point in time and I want you to look forward and realize that's what you're supposed to be doing and that's how leadership should be you look toward the future i didn't get that prophetic word i take one don't have one but i do have the prophetic word of the bible and i gotta think why do i exist on earth what am i here to do and you know what so do you can i read you from ephesians chapter 4 Ephesians, whenever you're reading Timothy, if you read Ephesians, there's a, they're, they're cousins. Why? Because Timothy's in Ephesus. So the letter is to Timothy, which is going to be read to the whole church, 1 Timothy. But the letter to Ephesus is read to the whole church, addressed to them. And here's what he says to the whole church of Ephesus. And here's why you should really pay attention to this. Not only that it's the word of God, but that if it's to church members in the first century, it's just as true for church members in the 21st century, Right? So here's what he said to them, and therefore to you. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Here we're being reintroduced to this familiar picture Paul gives us as the church being a body. It's a a figure of speech. We're like one big body, and Jesus is the head. You might say, what part am I? Look, we don't know, so I'd say whatever part you want to be, you can be. If you want to be the eye, you can be the eye. You want to be that, that, that bumpy skin on the bottom of the elbow? You can be that. Whatever you want. But you're a part and you matter. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Now, you are one of the joints in this picture. You're, what? you're holding the body together. You are. You know, any conception of the church that has an exalted clergy and that's the person who is holding us all together is just a wrong view. You're a part. One of the brothers in the church is, is going through some schooling and he's, he's having to learn anatomy. And he said he was going through a test. He had to have a test. And they're going to, you know, this bone, that bone, all these names. I taught him, I taught him how to get this biology test right or anatomy or whatever you'd call it. Because I learned this song when I was a kid, and I taught it to him. The foot bone's connected to the ankle bone, the ankle bone's connected to the shin bone. And apparently that wasn't sufficient. He says the shin has another name. I'm like, well. But the point is, you're an ankle bone. And you're connecting a foot to a shin. You're a knee bone. You could be a mandible, a clavable, a tibia, or a sternum. I don't know. With whom every joint with which it is equipped. Look at this. When each part is, what's that word, next word? Working. Sitting still, listening, and letting the pastor bless me. Huh, does it say that? Doesn't say that, does it? Sitting still, waiting to get a blessing while somebody else does the stuff. Huh? No? It says each part is working properly. Which implies that God looks at your life and says, I got a job for you. Wait, I'm just saved to get away from hell. Well, this is better than that. When I save people, I give them a job in my family. You have one. And and, and no one here is exempt. 
working properly, what's it do? It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In the big story, your little story is you are here to make the church grow in health, in love. That's your job. The emphasis is on the whole, not the part, but the part is put out as important. You know, one of the great difficulties um, that we can have is, is, is sometimes the culture of, of where, where we live comes into our thinking and it moves itself into our teaching, into our theology. And perhaps one of the areas this hits hard, when I got saved in the, in the early 80s, um, there was a lot of talk about Jesus as being your personal savior. I don't know if I hear that as much anymore, but he was my personal savior. To be saved, you had to re- receive Christ as a personal savior. And in a sense, if that means that I receive Christ personally, myself, I have to have my own relationship with him, I agree 100%. But there's another danger, that a blind spot that I have as an American is I think everything in the world is about me, about my individual autonomy and my individual freedom, and me having a personal savior is something I can take with me anywhere I go all by myself. And it's hard to get that into the picture of me being part of a body. He's not my personal savior. He's everybody's savior. <laughs> and, and he's the savior of the whole family of God. Imagine a builder goes to, to Lowe's and gets a piece of wood. And the wood goes, you're my personal builder. He goes, you're my personal wood. He takes the wood home and he throws it in the yard and then keeps building the house without it. He's like, well, that's silly. Well, of course it's silly, but that's the way I think we view our relationship with Christ. Well, he's my personal savior. People say, well, I've received Christ. I don't need the church. I listen to church on the radio. What the heck are you talking about? Is this an online educational program? You're, You're part of a family. And you have a job to do to benefit that family that only you can do. Ephesians 2.10, same book. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's you. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it wasn't just true of Timothy, it's true of me, it's true of you. Third, the Christian leader lives as a soldier fighting in a noble war. I love the strong language here because he says, wage the good war. Man, I love that. Maybe it's masculine, but there could, I don't want to, some of you women may like that picture too. So you can join, you know, whatever. you got some Joan of Arc types out there saying, I want to fight too, okay. He doesn't say, look, try to be kind of passive and safe and, and peaceful looking like Father Mulcahy on MASH because, <laughs> and I dated myself, because we don't want to look too dangerous. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, wage war. What war? What the heck war is he talking about? Is he supposed to get a gun and shoot people? I don't think so. One time, Jesus used war, a war picture to the apostles and said something about fighting. And one of them said, well, we have this sword. And Jesus was like, one sword? That ought to be enough. Just put it down. Put the knife down and back away slowly, Peter. So what war are we talking about? It's all over the New Testament, but we see it in one place in John chapter 15. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. The world hates Jesus? Yeah. Well, why do they put him on the cover of Time Magazine every Easter? That's not our Jesus. That's gang sign Jesus. (laughs) You know, with a plate around his head. And as long as that Jesus is kind of like a liberal professor and kind of, you know, tolerant of almost anything and is soft and fuzzy and carries flowers and lambs, they like him. But that's not our Jesus. The Jesus that's the real Jesus, the actual Jesus, he's dangerous. He's dangerous to the whole way the world works. Without raising a fist, an army, or a gun, he's revolutionized the world. He's always a subversive element in every family. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword that divides man from woman. In every government, I am a king. In every institution, he's subversive. He is the enemy invader who came to Satan's kingdom to raise an army of citizens that will fight for him. And the world knows it. There is a spiritual battle out there, and they know it. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. No, no one's going to write 
um, op-eds or, or get mad at a church that'll hang rainbow flags outside and marry Peter and Steve. Because, well, finally, you're just like us. We like you now. If you'll just claim there are other ways to God besides Jesus, the world's not going to get mad at you because you're just like them. If everything's all right. But if you're not like them, remember, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. So Jesus, wait, you said, come join my team. Right. That your team's the good team. Right. That I get eternal life. Right. I get forgiveness of sins. Right. You said, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, but I give you my peace. Right. You said, in this world you have trouble, but I have, I have overcome the world. Right. You said, be a good cheer. Right. So I came to your team and now everybody hates me. He goes, right. Okay, I guess. The world hates your Savior. The question is, do you love your Savior? It's easy to love someone when, not, when everyone loves them. Try loving someone when everyone hates them. Try, hey, you don't believe it? Remember high school? If you're still in high school, you say, I remember. It was like last Friday. It's easy to love the popular kid. Go to the one that no one will sit with. That when they do sit with them, they make fun of them. That's a hard one to love. Well, that's Jesus. 1 John 5, 19 says, We know that we're from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You were blind to this spiritual reality before you came to know Christ. Now you need to see the spiritual reality. There is a war going on. And the enemy hates you because they hate the boss that you just signed up with. If you don't want to be hated, don't join the team. But never be shocked at the venom put at the church. Never be shocked. Whether it's in the news, legally, people saying the church has to change and we're going to oppress them and what's wrong with those people? Or whether it's more personal, at work. This person find out I was a Christian, all of a sudden they treat me differently. I wonder why. Never be shocked. Because there's a danger of being at war and not knowing it. You say, why bring that up? Because many Christians walk around like they're not in a war. Did you know... I remember seeing, and I looked it up to verify my memory, an interview with some guy in a cave named Osama bin Laden in the 90s. And it turns out my memory wasn't that bad. In 1998, John Miller of ABC News went to a cave in Afghanistan, found some guy named Osama bin Laden who said, we are waging war with America. And I have billions of dollars. And you know what America did about that? Nothing. Do you know how concerned Americans were? They weren't. We didn't fight the war. Three years later, they sent planes and they killed 3,000 of us and knocked our buildings down. People said, why don't we connect the dots? Because you didn't know you were in a war. If you're in a fight and don't realize that the other guy's trying to beat you up, like that movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? What's the problem, Big Dan? Look it up. The devil, the Bible says, is a lion seeking to devour. Christians often think, I'm not in a war with the devil. So they play with sin. They play with lies. They play with the world. They think the devil's really a kitten and I'm a ball of yarn and he's just messing with me. Ooh, be careful. The devil might scratch you with his cute little claws. No, he's a lion seeking to destroy you. And you are at war. You are a soldier. You say, I don't want to be a soldier. Don't join the team. And this is a war. Now, by the way, there's no avoiding the conflict. Because God one day will judge the world through a man that he attested to you as from him by raising him from the dead. He will judge the world. He wins the war. And you're going to be on one side or the other. But there's no good coming in and acting oblivious to the fight or sucking your thumb and thinking, I'm not here for this. Look at Paul's language to you again in Ephesians. He says, wage the good war. Remember that letter I wrote to you guys? You're going to call it the book of Ephesians, Timothy, but right now it's just the letter I wrote to you guys. 
It said in 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why do I need armor? Because you're in a fight. That you may be able to stand. A lot of Christians wonder, why is my life hard? Why is this difficult? Why is this? Because you're in a fight and you're not fighting. You're neglecting God. You're neglecting obedience in the small things. You're neglecting love. You're neglecting prayer. You're neglecting faith. And you walk around thinking, why don't things just happen for me? You're in a war. In case you didn't notice, the earth is winning the battle with your mortal self. Stand in one place long enough, you become a pile of dust. The earth is winning. Gravity will beat you. Everything's against you. You're in a war. So put on your armor that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's very important that we get that. We don't wage war in the flesh. When we talk war language, our enemies, if they're listening, they love that. Because they think, see, they want to kill us. But we don't wage war against the flesh. We're not going to go all jihad. In fact, we wage war like our father wages war. Well, how does he wage war? It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Only God wages war like this. I have people who hate me more than anyone. So what I do is I patiently don't kill them. I tell them how much I love them until they stop fighting, put down their gun, and come back to me. And that's how we wage war. We're different. We, We love. That's how you fight? Yeah. Isn't that a wimpy way to fight? You try it. Try loving people who aren't kind to you. We look for lies and point out the truth. That's how you fight? Yeah. We speak the truth in love. Yeah. We overcome evil with good. Never return evil for evil, but overcome evil. You know what we do? We pray. We pray. That's, that's how you fight? That's how you fight. Created me a clean heart, oh God. I'm in a fight with the devil. He's calling me to sin to my old nature, and I can hear his call, but I don't want that. Created me a clean heart. Get, caused me to give more and find more joy in giving it up. We pull close to God. We trust. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we're wrestling Satan against rulers, against the authorities. Against, and you don't have to be in the spirit world. You don't have to join the, you know, like the exorcist movie. Have you ever noticed with these movies, anytime there's an exorcism in a movie, the priest is useless. I mean, why do they even bring him in? <laughs> I mean, he comes in, he's got the stuff, he's got a cross, he's got oil, he's throwing water. And, 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 and then it's like Satan gets stronger and he kills him and he blows his head up and the church catches on fire. It's like, why did you bring that guy in? Look, there may be an exorcism in your future where you're saying, you're saying in the name of Jesus, go. But more likely, your daily battle won't look like that. But it is a battle against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And you're going to fight it with faith in the word of God, with the grace of the gospel. Take, therefore, the whole army of God that you may be able to withstand. This is war language trying to tell you who you are. You're a soldier. This is a war. Let me move on. I made that point, and now I'm just hammering it home. Let me move on. The Christian leader remains true to the word and runs away from sin. I don't think this got into your map. That was my own fault. Just a little insight. I write the sermons a week before I preach them, and I underline the parts that are being the map. I don't write the map but I underlined the parts and I forgot this so you, you can write it down or not. The, leader, the Christian leader remains true to the word and runs away from sin. We see that back in our text. In verse 19, he says, when, I, when you wage a good warfare, hold faith and a good conscience. Um, as you fight this, never forget to look after your own salvation, Timothy. Never forget that you yourself need to eat the food you feed others with. Never forget you're supposed to do what you tell them to do. Keep the faith. Hold the right truths. Don't sell out the word and keep your conscience clean. How do you do that? You keep short accounts with God. Did I sin? Lord, forgive me. Create in me a clean heart and you do the right thing. Teach the right stuff. Beware secret sin. How many leaders do teach the right stuff and teach it well, but then you find out later for years they were in secret sin and that secret sin destroys them and hurts the whole church. Don't do that, Paul says to Timothy. It's the same true in your life. You're in front of the world. Wherever you go, your family, your job, your school, your recreation, you're in front of the world. 
And what you believe and the way you live matters. So attend to your own salvation. There are some people who attend to the salvation of the lost all the time. Let them know how wrong they are while they personally are living for Satan. And foolishly think they're not. So don't. You can't wage a good warfare with wrong beliefs and secret sin. Finally, false leaders are to be booted out of the church. Now this isn't a leadership lesson that's kind of strange. But, but look at the rest of our text. Go back to 19. He says... You hold faith in a good conscience, but some, by rejecting this, have made shipwreck of their faith. They're, they're riding a ship. They're in, you don't ride a ship. I guess you steer a ship. Maybe you ride a ship. Weehaw! We're on a ship. I don't know. They're steering a ship, and, and it's smooth sailing. The wind is at your back. Everything's fine. You go, there's some rocks. And you just crash the thing. That's what they do. They don't have to crash it. They just do. Because they don't hold to the right truths, and they don't keep a clean conscience. And among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander. These two guys from Ephesus actually get their name written down. Unfortunately, when Paul writes it down, it's not a blog, it's not a Facebook post. It's the Bible, the word of God which stands forever. Hymenaeus and Alexander picked the wrong time to be bad leaders. (laughs) I'm going to put that in the Bible. Whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That phrase is important, handed over to Satan. It's not like Paul, Satan, yeah. Here's a couple guys. Thank you. You know, it's not like that. We know he uses the term in 1 Corinthians of a man who was um, sinning, sleeping with his stepmother, or right, or mother-in-law, or something like that. And, and the church was letting it go. And Paul said, put him out. Hand him over to Satan. See, the language there, and the language is, is, is if you're out of the church, you're back in Satan's domain. The picture is this, that the Christian, if, you're, if he's truly saved, what is, what's he going to do? He's going to come back. If he's not saved, because you can be in the church and not be saved. And no one knows. You may not know. Until the fight comes, and you're like, huh, I ain't fighting for this. You throw your gun down and run back to the other team. Happens a lot. But for those who are truly saved who walk into sin, when you put them back out in Satan's world, they hate it. Their shame is bad. They hurt. It's not good. It's like taking a a gazelle and crippling it and throwing it to the lions. And so the goal is that they learn not to blaspheme. The goal is restoration. By the way, this is the ultimate end of church discipline. And yes, there is such a thing as church discipline. Churches can't make you do anything. It's a completely volunteer family. But there is such thing as membership, being a part of, agreeing this is my gang, and having the gang say, listen, you've shown, no matter how hard we try, that you're not going to act like the gang, you're acting like the other gang. There's the only thing we can do is say you're out of the gang. Church discipline. But the goal is restoration. I hand them over to Satan so they'd learn not to blaspheme, so they'd come back. The guy in 1 Corinthians did come back. In fact, Paul then had to yell at the church because he came back and the people wouldn't let him forget his sin. It's very important that when people repent of their sin, we let them off the hook. I don't want to always be remembered by my worst days. Do you? So, okay, he did that. It's over. It's long over. And Paul actually had to write him and say, the guy repented, give him a break. Didn't work that way with Hymenaeus. We know from the scripture he would actually go come like a Jehovah Witness. He, he said the resurrection already happened and all these strange doctrines. We don't know what happened to Alexander. The point though is there, there's accountability for leading in the church. And sometimes you have to go to the ultimate measure and kick them out or anyone out. The Bible says in Proverbs 18.10 the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous Man runs into it, and he is safe. Similarly, God's family, his body, is your shelter. And often, a person doesn't remember that till they're removed from it. Okay, applications. That was the text. Applications, short and sweet. First one, go to church. I never had that as an application in a sermon that I can remember. But it is, it fits perfectly in this one. Go to church. What do I mean by that? God meets with his assembled bodies. The word church means the assembly of God. The gathering of God. So the, the denomination, the assemblies of God, stole the good name. 
Now, we're not going to take the name. They can have it, but that's what it means. It's not a building. It's not a denomination. It's the people gathered. Jesus promises to be among us, and you will look in Acts. He is among the people when they gather in a special way. It matters that you don't just sit by your radio and learn your little lesson like a professor or a student. It matters that you know people, you're with people, you pray with people, you praise God with people. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I will tell of thy great deeds among the congregation, says David. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. There's something happens when you guys get together and you pray together. I'm there. How, if, if, if being put out of the church is being put into Satan's domain, how many people who are not disciplined simply expose themselves to the pain of Satan's domain by their own volition? No discipline at all. Do you know what I mean? Go to church. On June 30th, 2009, a man named Bo Bergdahl left a note on his bunk in Afghanistan renouncing his citizenship as a United States uh, citizen. <laughs> that was redundant. He was a soldier. He walked away and he marched off into the night. He voluntarily, without provocation, without need, put himself in enemy territory. The enemy captured him and made his life hell for five years. And then he made videos and said, Daddy, please take me home. Well, he was a fool. Who does that? You don't, you don't put your gun down and walk into enemy territory and expect to be treated well. How many Christians do the same thing spiritually all the time? Sometimes something bad happens in a Christian life and it makes them very sad. Sometimes when we're sad, we think the best thing for us to do is pull away from everybody because it's so uncomfortable to feel sad, especially when people around you look happy. Don't give in to that. You need those people. It's just, it's just wrong. It's just stupid. It's just bad. It's just like being Bo Bergdahl. And nobody wants to be Bo Bergdahl, except perhaps Bo Bergdahl. Sometimes there's a volitional sin. A person says, well, I just want to sin, so I'm not going there. <laughs> That's really true. But you know what I think the number one reason that gets people out of the group? Laziness. That's it. Just don't want to get up on Sunday morning. Just don't want to get up on Sunday morning. It's not a big issue. And what are they doing? They're putting themselves, first, they're not doing whatever their story is defined by God to do. They're not strengthening the body. They're a part who says, oh, little old me, I'm not important, when they are, and they remove themselves, and the body's weaker. But second, they're just putting themselves into enemy territory. And their lives go astray. They shipwreck their faith. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, do not, do not give up the habit of meeting together, as some do, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. We are a community. You don't grow in Christ by reading books alone. <laughs> Learning is part of it. But you grow in community. And, 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 and sometimes you have to work Sunday. I used to have to work Sunday. I had a job where I had a career where I had to work a lot of Sundays. And I remember how hard it was to get community. I once set up a 6 a.m. Bible study with a pastor and some other men just so I could go. He was just being nice to me. And no other men would show up. But hey, at least I was there. <laughs> what a nice pastor. It's, it can be hard if you don't connect. So connect. At Harvest, okay, come to the gathered worship service. Now, we have one on Friday night in Catanning. I know, some people have to work Sunday. My heart is there for you. It really is. But there's a Sunday and a Friday, excuse me. It means you might have to go to bed on Saturday night. Yeah, it's not so hard to get up on Sunday if you go to bed on Saturday well, Saturday's my night off. It's my time to let go. <laughs> Jesus got up on a Friday 
knowing the day would end with him taking nails in his hands and feet so he could buy you with his blood and bring you into this family. And you're saying, I gotta go out on Saturday night, I can't get up. Who looks like a wimp there? What are you talking about? This is your family. It's when we meet to worship our God and the Holy Spirit will show up and change us. We have community groups. Go. You're going to meet someone. They're going to know your name. So invasive. This is about vulnerability. It's about love. They're just as messed up as you are. Don't worry. And if you're too proud because you think they're more messed up with you, you need to get over yourself. You're a bigger mess than you think. Let your friends tell you. It's one of their gifts. Let them love you. If you can't make a community group, is there a small group of Christians you can gather with on a regular basis? Let me add a third part to that. Bring people to church. If this place is a shelter, if the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it and they're saved, if this, and I don't mean this building, I mean these people are a shelter. If coming in gives safety from the storm, truth when you need it. And how many of you before have been wandering in trouble and someone, a Christian, gives you a word in due season. You're like, man, I needed to hear that. I'm so glad I came tonight and heard you. Not even the preacher. Doesn't have to be. Anyone could do it. Well, if this is a safety, those folks out there are, as Jesus said, helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Have compassion on them. Bring them in. Invite them. We always do church for the Christians. We preach as if you're all believers, whether you are or not. We worship God as if you know who he is. But that doesn't mean someone who doesn't know God can't connect. Because we, we speak a language that's very common in Pennsylvania. It's called English. And if the word of God is, uh, is from God to man, then any man, woman, boy or girl with a lo- modical level of ability to communicate, just a low level, can understand the word. So bring them in. At this time, more than ever, we need to strengthen one another in a world where everything is being torn down. Everything is being torn down, folks. Nothing is sacred. Nothing. The one thing that needs to never move, but keep their foundation on the rock, is God's church that meets in the name of Jesus Are you building it or neglecting it? Your job, your part in the story is to build. I didn't assign you that job. This isn't your pastor trying to make you feel guilty or obligated. It's your job. And really, you'll find your joy there. And it's the one thing you can do. Your vote, yeah, vote. It may or may not help. It doesn't seem to help a lot. I vote a lot. Doesn't seem to be stopping the train to hell that our world's on. Definitely your, all your opinions on Facebook aren't doing a doggone thing. Or you're getting something off your chest, but you're just getting more ticked off and ticking off more people. You want to really help? You keep your church healthy. That helps. Now there's a light. Define yourself as a fighter, and I left another, my error, I meant another phrase in here, and a family member, not a customer. Customer is the way we we think as Americans, we're consumers. Everything's about what you can buy. Everything is about what you get. I go to Starbucks, I'm a customer. Give me this coffee. Do what, give me this. Give me, you know, all these names. Sometimes, you can just get a coffee there. Some hippie comes in and says, some really long name that has the word decaf, latte, caramel, macchiato, wacchiato, chacchiato, frappuccino, wiki You can just order coffee. But if you like all that stuff, you can have that too. You're a customer. Go to McDonald's, you're a customer. Americans, you've got to change the way you think when you walk into your family. I mean, you walk into your family and say, Mom, I'm a customer here. Not digging the green beans, your casserole stinks. Can, they, can I see what else is on the menu? If you have a halfway decent mom, she'll say, shut up and eat your food. <laughs> but people treat church like a customer. It's your family. Hmm, not knowing I like in this. Not knowing if it's serving me. Am I being served? Hmm, 
don't know how much I want to pay for this. Hmm. I'm going to go find another store for Jesus. Don't think like that. This is your family. And we're fighting together. It's not how am I being served. It's how can I strengthen my brothers and sisters so we can stand together in this war. Because the guy next to me, or the gal next to me, I'm so thinking about am I being served, that person's struggling because something's going wrong. They need strength. Or they're fighting the war, they need some ammo. How can I help them? Lastly, fight the good fight. The imagery is war, but the weapons are not carnal. This ends with this. Look, look. We bless, we forgive, we tell the truth, we pray, we don't fall into the sin of the world. That's the good warfare. But remember this, when Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world, he didn't say the whole world was going to be saved. But what he did say to the whole world is, I want every one of you, the message of Jesus, the way he fights his war ultimately, is to say to people who hate him, stop fighting, come and join us. That's your job. You go tell the world, I don't hate you. Yeah, you do. You hate us all. I know you think that. I'm not going to get mad at you for that. But listen, come join us. Join you people? Yes, because God loves you. You'll be amazed at how that simple message breaks hearts. And if you're here, like many, come to church and don't know them. Don't think, I, I went to church, it made me a little better. It's got to help. It doesn't help, right? It's like going to a garage, doesn't fix your car. Someone actually has to do something on the car. To do something on your car engine, to push this farther, you have to respond to a simple invitation from Jesus who says, come and join me. That's a decision you make in an invisible place called inside you. Have you made it? Make it. Come join us. Come on in. The water's fine. We're going to ride this baby to the end. We're going to save all that we can. And when the plane we're flying on is nothing but wreckage on the ground, we get a new world and we live with our Father forever. Come join us. There's a lot of room. It's good. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.